Hey y'all, it's Baldo here, and I want to help you unlock your next level potential with a discounted ticket to this year's Howdy Health Fest happening in December. Use code HDYHPOD25 and enjoy a weekend filled with world-class biohacking products, top health experts, movement, connection, and recovery, and maybe even some ice baths and some nice sauna time. Remember, this year's festival is December 2nd through 4th. It's going to be an exciting time. We are committed, committed to you to bring you the best experience that your health can achieve. Welcome, guys, to the How Do You Health podcast. We are here today live with Stefan Schmelik. Melik, right? And uh, we are so happy to be doing this because uh, we just did a little brief pre-podcast chat, and sound healing is what we're going to get into. Sensate is the product that you have invented, but do you have history? I mean, you have tons of your history. I was looking at your bio and, like, looking at all the different... I mean, even cooking and like restaurant in your home kind of deal. Like that was like when you were first getting started, right? We're going to get into that here in a second. I also, we have uh, Nurse Doza here. I'm Tex-Mex Yogi. But uh, Stefan, can you give uh, the the viewers and the listeners just a brief introduction to who you are and what you do? Yeah, totally. I mean, based in the UK, in London. And I guess what unifies the various things I've done is an interest in natural medicine and holism. So an interest in natural medicine and holism. So I was brought up um, meditating at a very young age by my dad. He taught me and my brother to meditate. So I've been meditating for 50 or more years. And that's kind of informed really everything I've done from cooking and natural health right through to what we're doing now with sound healing. I founded New Medicine Group, which was the UK's main integrated healthcare clinic in Harley Street about 20 years ago. I've been practicing as an integrated healthcare physician for the last 30 years. And what we sort of specialized in as a team, we had 300 years of clinical experience in the, in the team. So we were by far the most experienced team in, in Europe. Uh, and we specialized in seeing people who had complex and interesting, hard to diagnose health problems. Um, they would come to us once they've seen you know, lots of other consultants and had lots of other um, interventions. And then we would put together a program for them. So we became particularly interested in you know, what is it that makes some people get better and some people not get better. The answer appears to that appears to be what we call resilience, but also very importantly, something called anti-fragility, which is different. And it has similarities, but actually is importantly different from resilience in a number of ways. And I've been I've been specialising in the treatment of trauma, anxiety, depression, insomnia, chronic pain for a number of years. And I've been using breathing, meditation and sound based work for a long, long time now. So in a sense, what I'm doing now with the technology company is the essence, the distillation if you like, of that sound-based work into a scalable solution. Because what I realized about five years ago is I can sit in my clinic for the next 20 years and see tens of thousands of people, but that's still a pretty small impact on what I perceive as being the single biggest global problem, uh, which is stress and anxiety and fear-based decision-making. And if I may just qualify that, I think you know the biggest problem that the world has today is stress and anxiety simply because... Um, unless we can get a tipping point of people globally thinking from a much clearer, non-fear-based place, then we're never going to put together the kind of long-term plans necessary to solve all the other global problems which are happening right now. So, you know, we um, the com- thank you. The company really is hugely united behind this vision. We see what we're doing as incredibly important. We see it as part of a movement. Uh, towards creating a tipping point of you know evolved consciousness of people who are able to self-regulate 
able to control their own fear response in a much more distinct way because so much of what's going on in modern life in the modern world is pulling in the other direction you know social media news and you know let's be honest technology as well is pulling towards short-term thinking uh, diffused attention span and fear-based decision making so you know we we, we want to be an antidote and a, and a solution to that and from a clinical point of view it's incredibly effective i agree completely it's also about getting the person out of going back into the frequency of the vibration and the sound. It's getting them out of that frequency, that mindset, the loop that they're on all the time. And the reason Baldo mentioned that I love vibrational therapy and sound therapy you found as well, it's a great way to get that person out of that neurological feedback system loop of theirs. And then now you can say, all right, now that you're in a different mindset, now that you're a different frequency, you have different thoughts, you have different patterns that are coming to you. And a lot of times people, because they're watching the TV or they're watching, you know, their phone and videos in there, it's a very low vibration that they don't realize that's basically penetrating their brain and just looping into numbing their thought patterns. Am I wrong? Is this, am I way off on this? Yeah, I mean, it's, we use the term vibration in different contexts, don't we? So, of course, when people are talking, talking about high, you know, taking people to a higher vibration, they're talking about a kind of transcendent, higher way of thinking higher way of feeling and being we're actually using infrasound it's a low frequency vibration sort of the kind of the, the level of in below below 40 hertz so below human generally speaking below human hearing so my experience and testing is that we respond to lo- the right kind of low frequency vibration at a very instinctive primal nervous system level and I mean, I think there's a few things that kind of quantify that. I mean, we can say with a high degree of certainty that vibration would have been our first sense. So before we had eyes or ears or any other kind of sense organs, we would have perceived the world around us through vibration. So the sense of vibration is highly tuned into every cell in our body. And I think this is one thing that we're seeing now is that we tended to think of sound as being purely something to do with compression, airwave compression in the ears. And what we're seeing, actually, so much of um, sound appreciation and perception is body sound perception, not just oral ear sound perception. So, you know, if we only look at what's going into the ears, we lose so much of the sentient capability of sound. So that's really where we're focused. So, um, as you know, sensators and technology that sits on the chest as a small pebble device synchronizes with the app. So the music comes through the headphones in the app, but the device resonates at sub-infrasound um, frequencies or near-infrasound frequencies and uses bone conduction yeah, on your chest into your thoracic cavity to using the airspace in your chest and lung. And therefore, automatically creates a bespoke feedback mechanism because everybody's chest and lungs and thorax is different. And the way I like to think about it is, you know, you can have a beautiful speaker, but if the cabinet the speaker is in is if it's just lying on the table or something it's not going to sound good right so your your thorax in this case the way we're using your thorax is kind of turning that into the speaker cabinet so what you feel is this resonance and this humming and this oming chanting feeling inside your body and i think the from what we from what we see um with people's reporting and also our own experimentation is that that's kind of what people experience so people experience outcomes which are very similar to the kind of things that human beings have done for tens of thousands of years, or for many thousands of years, have naturally gravitated towards, which is ways to make the chest resonate. So, oming, chanting, humming, singing, sacred music, ceremony, 
you know, human beings have always done this because it feels good. And it's actually very similar to the way that domestic cats learn to purr. There's been quite a lot of research now into cat purring, right? And they purr at a particular frequency, which produces cellular healing. So cats purr when they're happy and content, when they're afraid or when they're injured. And doing this actually produces homeostasis. It, it takes them into neural balance and it produces healing. And we know that um, producing the right kind of frequencies, whether you're doing that in a very organized, knowledgeable way through something like omming or chanting, or you're just simply humming in the shower, it feels, I mean, that, that's why we hum in the shower, right? Because it feels good. We, we know that when we're happy and hummy, we feel better. We feel more in flow state at the end of that process than when we started, even, with, even though we're not necessarily conscious of that's what we're doing. So, yes, I mean, so, yeah, raising people's vibration, absolutely. But in a sense, you could say we're raising people's vibration by connecting them to low frequency vibration in their chest. Correct, correct. So, so I, have, I have two things. One of them, I want to make a comment about, you said about the ear, what, what we can hear, right? That's just part of it, right? which, which makes sense because the ear is just basically helping your brain give a definition to whatever vibrations it's picking up in the air, right? But the vibrations are still happening and being sensed by other parts of your body. And like you said, like there might be frequencies that you can actually hear in a sense and but it's still creating something which is really interesting but the thing that i wanted to ask about which i i think i have an answer for it now the answer being like the intention's a big deal but i've always my thing with sound healing or like sound healing bowls that i i would always get in my head about like if i went to a sound healing class was like well, how do I know that they are playing the right tones? Like, how do I know that that tone is not like a, a disservice to what I want? And so I would get in my head about like, did she really study like what, like what speed and pressure she'd be doing to create the right sound to make a healing sound? Or is she just like going around in circles and maybe it's doing something wrong? <laughs> I mean, the people that make the bowls are very knowledgeable. Here's one I, here's one I, I had earlier. Uh, there's the crystal silicon bowls, but obviously the, the metal bowls, which are very complex alloys, actually, the creation of the metal Tibetan uh, and other bowls. The people that make these know what they're doing. And a bit like, you know, a G-string a G on a guitar is only capable of producing a G-string, right? So even if somebody plays it badly, it's still going to play a G. So there's a limit. To, if, you, if, if the instrument is correctly calibrated, there's a limit to what some, to the damage, if you like, that somebody can do. But it's an interesting point because there is more research into the potential um, adverse effects of infrasound, low frequency sound, than there is into the beneficial research and beneficial impact. There's loads of research into ultrasound, high frequency vibration, a vast amount of research into that. And that's used, of course, extensively in medicine and other areas. But low frequency sound is only used really in Northern Europe. It's used as in physio departments and for chest issues in mostly in Europe. I don't think it's used extensively elsewhere. So there's much less research available. And it is possible in the same way as you can use ultrasounds to shatter an object. You know, they do that for kidney stones, etc. You can also make somebody unhappy using infrasound. But you have to know what you're doing. You know, as long as you understand the frequencies and the music theory behind it, which is what's critical. And this is what we spent five years doing and it was a big part of our secret source is understanding not just the frequencies you're using, but how you relay those frequencies in a technological device that then interacts through bone conduction into the hollow space of somebody's thorax. So there's levels of interaction there that you have to understand. So, you know, just sticking your phone on your chest isn't going to do it, right? It's a much, much more complex issue than that. Well, sure. 
again, for me, one of the things that's interesting is that we particularly focus on the action of the of sound on the vagus nerve. So one of the things we say that we're pioneering is the use of therapeutic sound as vagus nerve toning. So vagus nerve stimulation using micro electrical impulses is, is relatively mainstream now. It's, it's uh, become a relatively large industry. There's both implantable vagus nerve stimulation devices and skin dermal vagus nerve stimulation devices. So this is using microcurrent to literally manually stimulate the vagus nerve, which, and, and, you know, and some of the research has been really good for epilepsy, for migraine. It's being researched for a bunch of other issues as well, like Alzheimer's and obesity and um, chronic digestive issues, all that way, inflammatory issues. Because of the vagus nerve's central role, really, in regulation of kind of all autonomic function in the body. But we've taken a different approach, which is we talk about vagus nerve toning rather than vagus nerve stimulation. Because obviously, if you're stimulating, you can overstimulate. And you definitely see that with electrical stimulation. You can get overstimulation of the vagus nerve, and that can cause issues. Using sound is pretty non-invasive. It's very, very, very safe. It's not associated with any kind of ad adverse event um, a, a number that, we're, that is meaningful. And it, you can't really force the body to do something using sound. It's very difficult. Yeah, because as I say, the experience of using the device on your chest means that it's interacting with an audience and creating a bespoke biofeedback loop with your own body. Yeah, so it's, 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 not, it's not like you're imposing something in the same way onto the body. And my clinic, the New Medicine Group, um, I mentioned we became interested in you know, what is it the best way for describing or building resilience and anti-fragility in, in a human subject? And the answer seems to be vagal nerve tone. Yeah, that seems to be the best metric that we can come up with that explains why some people get ill and some people don't, why some people recover and some people don't, why some people are much better to, um, better able to roll with the punches than others. So, you know, we're, we're pretty convinced that the thing that we should all be working on improving is vagus nerve tone, because that gives you the adaptability to respond, but also recover. You know, so there's elevating vagus tone, vagal nerve tone, and then there's you know down regulating vagal tone to relax, which is the relaxation response. And I think the point is, you know, we've had one other point, which is, you know, we've had a vagus nerve. Human beings, what the vagus nerve has existed for five, six hundred million years, whereas human beings have only had a frontal human brain for about a million years. So vagal nerve function is infinitely more hardwired into our cells than being human is. So if we can speak directly to the vagus nerve, we can bypass a lot of the complex thing, torture that human beings do to themselves, you know, the ways in which we make ourselves suffer through ruminating on things. Yeah? But if you can bypass that higher brain function and go straight in a nervous system level and using non-verbal communication, which is what sound is doing, yeah, you bypass culture, you bypass language, and it's effective without the need for so much preparatory work. What you mentioned the metrics, right? Like the of the vagus nerve. Like, what do you are you measuring? Like, how activated it is? Is that like how are you measuring? I'm just curious. Yeah, no, it's a really interesting point. To measure the vagus nerve directly is pretty invasive. You have to kind of, um, I mean, generally speaking, you have to wire people up to a whole bunch of stuff in a lab. And as soon as you do that, obviously, you have an impact on the very thing you're measuring, of course. So we mostly, we measure um, proxies for the vagus nerve, things like heart rate variability, respiratory rate, 
CO2, respiratory CO2, body temperature, relaxation response, those sort of things. In a recent study we did, for the first time, we started to measure brain waves, so doing EEG information as well. And certainly what we've consistently seen in all our studies is that there is a vagal nerve proxy impact. And so there's a strong suggestion that the, tech, the use of the technology is having a direct effect on the vagus nerve. Wow. Well, I mean, I, I was thinking it was interesting. We, uh, I saw that I think humans have only been even writing and communicating that way for like 80,000 years. Right. And so the higher development, you know, I keep going back to that terminology is more of a catch 22 because, you know, people want to upregulate, they want to downregulate, but what's really interesting about stress is that it's constant, right? So the vagal nerve is going to respond no matter what we want it to do. And sometimes it does it automatically, which is obviously the autonomic nervous system, but it's fascinating. Breath work is the one major tool that anyone can use to kind of help regulate it into their own control, right? Yes. It's an interesting question. In theory, yes. But the reason I am now doing what I'm doing and I've stopped, I've largely stopped clinical work is what I found is that the tools I'd had been, I'd been using with patients for 30 years started to be ineffective. So the mindful, and I, you know, I trained with various monks and I trained, I did mindfulness training with John Kabat-Zinn. So I was using mindfulness-based um, stress reduction work with people. I was using Buddhist meditation. I was using a lot of breath work that we pioneered. And people's ability to engage with the exercises really fell off a cliff about 15 years ago. So whereas I would, at one point I could tell people, you know, do this thing, come back in a month, practice it for half an hour a day. And people at one point would do that. It got to the point where people could no longer do it. It's not even that they were unwilling or even too busy. It's like they, they would say, oh, well, I tried to do that. Sat down and actually I just started to get more anxious. The more I focused on my breathing, the more anxious I got. Or I kept on, I was trying to empty my mind sitting there meditating. I kept on thinking about all these things. And this is, you know, my basic evaluation is that a significant proportion of the human race in what we call economically developed regions has become so neurally overstimulated that it's more or less impossible for them to have quietness and, and, and stillness. So even some of the apps, which are brilliant, by the way, um, there's some great mindfulness and music-based apps. You'd be surprised, maybe you wouldn't be surprised, the proportion of people that actually get more anxious when they try to inter um, use those items. Yeah, they actually sit there trying to relax, trying to notice their breathing, and they actually become worse as a result. So this was really the whole basis for realizing that meditation and breath work really works most efficiently for the people that don't need it. For the people who are, you know, let's face it, this is already a problem, but post-COVID, it's a huge, literally a massive global problem. The proportion of uh, people who are stressed, anxious, and traumatized, there's a very, very high level of trauma in the average population that hasn't really been recognized. This is us, you know, I'm not talking about the people out there. This is all of us. This is people we know, this is ourselves. It's very hard for, for us to use these tools which have been used for that, which have been uh, used successfully for, for thousands of years by other people. Because the world we're living in now is a very different, overstimulated world. And these tools weren't designed for this world. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, because if you think about it, like you're still being, like even if you shut off, disconnect your router and all that so like there's still all sorts of waves going on because there's all sorts of electricity going on everywhere around you so i imagine it's like at a subconscious level still activating you right like you would think 
Well, there's so many levels of um, stimulation or pollution or toxicity. I mean, my clinic, we, we, we ran an environmental medicine clinic. So a lot of people have organophosphates and pesticide residues in, in their cells. And it's almost impossible to avoid organophosphates and petrochemicals, etc. completely. There is then electro pollution, as you say, which is almost impossible to eliminate entirely from your diet. But then, of course, most of us aren't even really trying to eliminate a lot of things. You know, we are exposed to blue light, to LEDs, to overhead lights, to screens, which at a time of day when that's going to throw out our natural biorhythms. I mean, just that one thing, bear in mind that blue light didn't exist until quite recently. All light was red until the advent in real terms of LED. An overhead blue light at night totally messes your brain up. It has no idea what this is. You know, it's used to seeing a setting sun or a rising sun. It just has no idea what an overhead LED blue light is. There is indeed a barrage of information coming in, both perceived and non-perceived, audible and inaudible. And I think all human beings have to have an active strategy to counter this if we want to remain healthy and happy. Yeah, and I think that's why you brought up a, an interesting point, the idea that they want to do this, right? I hear a lot of people say, I know what to do. You know, I, I just don't do it. And these are grown adults. You know, I know they're successful in life because obviously they're dressed in clothes and they look like they're conditioned and somewhat of, you know, to present themselves on a daily basis. So I'm like, why are you not eating right? Why are you not going outside more. You got to know sitting at a desk all day is not good for you. Come on, you know, like we should know better. Oh, I know I should go do this. And, you know, it's fascinating. I think you know, going back to the vibrational therapy, the reason I love it so much is that it's almost like a direct connection, like you said, to the nervous system to where now you can almost change the frequency the way you would change it on a radio station. You can now shift out of something and I've seen date back to even Hippocrates would be like a sound healer. He used to do it in like a temple, right? And so I think it's fascinating. Half the mindset is just wanting to make that change. And I think the body can then take care of the rest if you just get it out of uh, its comfort zone, that it's this pattern that's been in for a little while, right? Yeah, I mean, leaving comfort zones is really important. You know, there is human need for comfort is bottomless. You can never be too comfortable. You get that new bed and, oh, yeah, that's lovely. Now I need the new pillow and now I need the new house and now I need the swimming pool to go with it. Human beings can never be satisfied. And in fact, the more we have, of course, the less able we are to deal with any kind of bumps in the road. So um, one of the things I say to people is, you know, become less comfortable. Remove comfort systematically from your life either on a regular basis or on a, an occasional basis, you know, including things like intermittent fasting and sleeping outside and cold exposure. There's many, many ways in which we can do this. We need to understand the more comfortable we are, the less anti-fragility we have, the less our resilience is. Because we're just too comfortable. We don't have the ability to adapt. I'm just, I'm just trying to remember what the point was you said a minute ago, which is interesting. Oh, this sounds oh, like Hippocrates and he was uh, in the temple basically is a way to go into their nervous system and catch them in a way to where now you can change them out of a, like a radio station, right? Like you can change their frequencies, you can upregulate. Actually, it was partly that. The, the, what I was going to say was the hardest thing with humans is behavior change. Human beings are really bad at behavior change. And we tend to think that what we need is information. 
and diagnosis. So people, you know, if I had the right diagnosis, I would know what to do. If I had the right information, I would know what to do. In fact, you know, my experience is in the vast majority of cases, people know exactly what to do. The problem is they're not doing it. So it's about engagement. And when I designed Sensate, you know, almost pretty much the number one criteria was that people would find it effective and enjoyable and want to repeat it after a single 10 minute session. And we achieve that with virtually all users because, you know, frankly, unless you can get engagement right at the beginning, you're not going to get the numbers you want. And as Anna Goodmanson, my amazing CEO, says, the most effective tool is the one people use. Yeah, I've seen plenty of really ineffective clinical interventions, you know, drugs, tools, therapies, which people won't access for whatever reason because they're, they're not effective quickly enough or they're scared of them. And therefore, they're effectively worthless because unless people use them, what, they have no value. What we've always really accentuated within the company is how enjoyable and engaging the experience is because then people repeat it and then you start getting the numbers that become interesting. So our, our users recently completed 20 million minutes of Sensate time. And actually, I worked out it would have taken me a little bit over 300 years to achieve a similar impact in, by seeing patients in the clinic. So I'm happy from that point of view. And in as much as creating the company was all about trying to um, scale impact, you know, we're already doing that now. How long did it take from, like your, from the start of creating Sensate to like the launching it? I'm just curious. We were in stealth mode for about two, two and a half years. I've been using sound technology for a long time in the clinic, and we were getting amazing results with that. We were using a technology which had been developed for the U.S. Army for veterans coming back from Iran and Iraq with PTSD. And we were using that with a number of problems and getting fantastic results. These were kind of, this is clinical expensive tech. And I realized what I wanted was something which was scalable and, and consumer. And that's how you get 100 million people. You're not going to get 100 million people come to a clinic. You can get 100 million people using this at home benefiting from this i was meditating using some of our clinical tech and i had this eureka moment i suddenly realized oh, okay so we can miniaturize the tech doing this and if we put it on the chest and use bone conduction we can make it this small so that was kind of and it was all kind of downloaded really and then i patented that so the whole kind of process came to me very quickly and then there was like i say a couple of years of prototype development testing on patients in clinic and then the, the launch of the product to the consumer so it's available now. The product is available now at uh, getsensate.com, but also we're fundraising. We've created a round, a community round, so that not just institutional investors, professional investors, but but you know the community can actually invest directly in the company, which is you know important from us from a values point of view. Talk to Anna a little bit and uh, see if you guys can come down to our festival in December and like present it to people and let people use it and all that stuff. And but we'll talk about that later. But I think that at, in some capacity we can. If anything, at least have a couple of devices out there so people can use and try and then order online or whatever. Oh, totally. That'd be amazing. Yeah. That'd be in Austin. Yeah, it yeah, actually, yeah. I don't know, uh, you know what that looks like for you in the future, but we've had people who've done vibrational therapy devices, and it's really fascinating because you hit a key term. You said the experience. And I think you talked about behavior change, and it has to be almost an experience where somebody goes through very quickly, you know, that shift to where they might not be able to do it on their own. And all of a sudden now they're kind of like, okay, that was different. Something is different now. 
I can't put my finger on it. It's very interesting. It's very similar to when someone takes a psychedelic for the first time. They really can't explain what happened, but they're like, something is very, very different afterwards. And it's weird because a lot of people are looking for lubes almost ways, like a quick kind of fix to get into it. And I want to point out with a vagal nerve response, it's like an on off switch. It's not something that easily is shifted into the opposite direction. Like it kind of stays locked in for a while and then it can fluctuate. Talk about the consistency of doing like, is there maintenance therapy of vibrational therapy? Like, what does that look like? I think one of the interesting things about toning a nerve as opposed to toning a muscle is that the change and improvement is relatively permanent. You know, so we know that when we go to the gym and we lift some weights, by the time you've changed and you're going to the car or you're walking, hopefully, the muscles have already started to atrophy, right? You know, the muscles are already weakening. Now with, um, as Carla Schatz said, you know, neurons that fire together, wire together, right? So as you create neural networks, every time you think about a particular thing and you reinforce that habit, you reinforce that neural network, you increase the strength of that neural network. So this is how we make habits and habits can be good or bad, right? So a habit about meditating every day or about drinking a bottle of whiskey every day is, you know, we are what we do. The things we repeat the most are where our neural network strength is. And those are the things that we do. That's where our neurology will default. So that's the value of repetition. And I hesitate you to use the word hack, but you can kind of hack repetition. If you do things consciously and with um, a lot of the body involved and the mind body involved, then the effectiveness on the neural network is, is much stronger. If you think about doing an exercise, you get some of the benefit of doing the exercise just by thinking about it. So, so I do, you know, all the people in the gym who are watching TV or listening to something while running aren't getting the full benefit. If they were thinking about running and they had their mind fully engaged in the exercise they were doing, rather than trying to distract themselves from it, they'd be getting 20% more benefit. And people will do many things to get 20% uplift in an activity. People will pay a lot of money for that, right? And all, all they've got to do is focus on what they're doing. Well, you brought up a good point though. I want to actually... I'll give you a chance to circle back to this. You said interesting point. When you get that 20% extra increase from the idea of just focusing on your workout rather than being distracted, you could see the benefits and you'll take that all day, right? You'll get more out of your workout. But what's also fascinating is I can't remember the actual name of the technique, but you can actually pretend you're lifting weights, visualize it with the weight in your actual mind, and then pretend like you're pushing heavy weights and lifting like a bench press. And your body will increase muscles just the same way if you were using real weights. So the mind is that powerful. Absolutely. The mind and body are united, right? So the idea of holism comes as a revelation in the West. But in the Far East, in China, the mind and body were never separated. I mean, they were always one. So there is no concept of holism in Chinese medicine, in traditional medicines of the East. The Greco-Roman tradition where we divided the mind and the body, we had science and arts they're regarded as separate things. Now we're kind of bringing these back together and we're saying actually to be a rounded person and to have a rounded physiology and, and, and health, you should have mind and body working as one. You should have art and science working together. To separate them is artificial. And it's artificial from the point of view of creativity and human development. It's also artificial to the human. You know, if we try and not be creative and try and focus just mathematical, scientific output, we reduce our functionality as a human being. 
So if we want to be around you know, the first Olympics, they would have poetry was one of the first Olympic sports, you know, as well as archery and wrestling. The Greeks understood the value of arts and sciences, even if they then separated them apart. We've seen in experiments with awe, measuring awe, A-W-E, that infrasound has an effect in generating an awe-like, an awe-struck-like output for people. So you can simulate this using virtual reality headgear. So like, you know, if you listen to the first footage of the astronauts in space, you know, what the first time a human being has ever seen the planet Earth from above, it's hard for him to speak. He says, I am awestruck. And he uses this word. So sense of awe is something which transcends all human boundaries and it does produce instantaneous change. And it seems quite likely, certainly, that the vagus nerve controls a big part of that. The sense of wonder, the sense of awe. And research I've been looking at recently suggests that the, the infrasound, low-frequency sound, has a particular role in increasing awe perception in human beings. And I think that's why composers were using low-frequency sound in the composition of a lot of sacred music. If you look at the church music of people like Monteverdi or Bach, a church organ that's lower two octaves are below human hearing. So it actually, they were writing music for an instrument that has two octaves below oral perception. And I've experienced this. I've asked an organist in a fantastic, um, I'm very lucky living in England, there's a lot of big cathedrals here. You know, I've experienced some of this low frequency music within a church environment and you feel the whole building move. And you do feel and experience a sense of wonder and awe at the magnitude of this. So I think infrasound has a particular role to play in awe, and it's awe that's transcendent. It's very different from entertainment. So it's relatively easy to produce an entertaining experience using technology. You know, it can be musical, it can be audiovisual, it can be VR-based. And you can, at the end of it, you might say, oh, yeah, that was great. But, you know, it doesn't change your life. Whereas I bet pretty much everyone can remember a moment or several, hopefully several moments in their life when they've experienced genuine awe, they've been awestruck. And there's a very good argument that one of the things that we should be doing is increasing the amount of awe in our lives, finding and creating opportunities to experience awe. I love that. I try to put myself in that all the time. Like I love to climb and a lot of it is that when I'm up in the mountain, I'm just like, I don't even know what to say. Like, <laughs> I'm just going to take this in. <laughs> yeah. So no, that resonates very well with me as far as uh, that message you just gave. So I mean, he literally just climbed a mountain two weeks ago. This is why he's saying it. <laughs> yeah, well, it's funny because people were asking me like, "Tell me more about," and I was like, "It's just amazing, you know." Like, and I, like, and I could try to describe it, and it's not even my first mountain, right? Like, I've done so many, and every single time, it's just like I don't even know what to say. <laughs> Yeah, you can't get bored of awe or being awestruck, can you? And I think it's pretty much universal that experience of awe is associated with nature. You know, so there are tremendously important emotional triggers and anchors in people's lives, like, you know, the birth of a baby, the death of a parent or, you know, um, somebody close to you, etc. But they're still not really awe experiences. They're very strong emotional experiences. People tend to only experience awe in a natural environment, you know, which is what's called, you know, biophilia. So the the love of the natural world. And we know that exposure to water sounds, so what we call blue and green ecotherapy, exposure to water sounds and nature sounds, bird sounds, wind sounds, tree sounds, 
we know that these have an incredibly calming effect on the autonomic nervous system. So we use, of course, a lot of this in our creation of our content. We're non-verbal, but of course, we're not silent. Wow. <laughs> well, I've enjoyed this very thoroughly. I've looked at vibrational therapy as something of a, a long-term you know, study. It's not anything that we completely understand you know, right now. I've been the background of chiropractic. I've had neurology explained to me in a way to where we study the brain, but when you study vibration, you study the mind. So it's a different thing that doctors and practitioners are really trying to grasp that it's this thing that has so much power, you know, sometimes don't even know what we're looking at. You know, we try to scan the brain. We try to, you know, look at it and say, well, this part of the brain's lit up. And I'm like, yeah, well, imagine if all the brain was lit up on that scan, you know, like, what would that look like? And it's fascinating. You talk about the data. So we have an EEG scan as well. And uh, we looked at, you know, my brain, looked at Baldo's brain. Baldo meditates a lot. He does breath work. I do chant work. We measure like HRV and things like that, the electricity traveling through our body. And we learn to harness it, right, and cultivate it. And it's almost like this kinetic energy that you develop after a while. It's like you get to do what you want with it. And it's a new form of optimization. You know, it's a new way of thinking. And, and for the biohacking community, it's one of their goals, right? You call it self-actualization if it's in public health, but really it's looking at the idea that I've achieved something, I've unlocked potential within my overall function and performance. And it takes a lot to get there. But then, like I said, going back to that whole maintenance thing, it's also this progression to where you see where it can go. You know, like Baldo is a master of meditation and his biggest question is, well, how can I go deeper into it? You know, like, how can I go deeper into it? I'm like, well, you're already there. We're already there. I think what happens is, is that you kind of go in and out, but you can control what state, what a reality, what like mindset do you want to be in, right? I mean, that's what Baldo's even taught me as a business partner. He's like, whatever it is, that's what you give purpose to, you know, to be happy. You can be happy if you want, you know, to be sad and own it, be sad, you know? And I think that's part of the chanting and the vibrational therapy that I do at home is I try to ground with it. And I start from the ground up if the sacral root, right? The root chakra is the key. Yeah, I mean, I think that meditation covers a lot of terrain. And I think one of the things that people don't say enough about meditation is how hard it is. Because it's simple, it doesn't mean it's easy. It's the simplest and the hardest thing you'll ever do which is just to simply be present with your own thoughts. I mean, there's lots of variations, of course, of meditation. I think what I've realized through my clinical work is that even being able to start meditating requires one to be in a particular place. Otherwise, you get what we're seeing, which is a fairly high adverse event response to people trying to do techniques when actually their nervous system is highly dysregulated. If you want somebody to have a panic attack, the best thing to do is tell them to notice their breathing. Because as soon as you start to notice, oh, oh, I'm not breathing properly, I'm holding my breath. And of course, that's going to make that's going to mean you breathe even less properly, even less well, and your CO2 will fall and you'll probably have a panic attack. So the amazing human brains we have are also the thing that gets in the way. We need to be able to allow the mind and the body to self-regulate, which is what the autonomic nervous system does beautifully. You know, we've evolved over hundreds of millions of years, this fantastic autoimmune system, autonomic nervous system, which if we simply let it do its, uh, its job, it does it amazingly. But, you know, we tend to interfere with that process. 
Oh, it just need to get out of its own way. Yeah, just need to get out of the way is basically what it is. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Get out of the way of your own brain. That's exactly right. That's a beautiful way of putting it. But it's quite hard to do that. And when we are locked into this kind of flight, fight, freeze, adrenal, fear-based response, then it's very hard to do that. So, you know, for me, it's all about taking a critical tipping point mass of people up to a point where they're able to sit back enough and start to do work on their higher systems. And my experience is that most people aren't in a position to do that. Stefan, I got one last question for you. It's something that I wrote down on my notes because I was trying to look for it again right now, but I couldn't figure out where I saw it. But I think through reading through your bio or maybe through the Sunset webpage, I ran into this part of it that said the rewilding of the soul and the heart. It, it stood out to me, right? Because it's like taking it back to the wild. Is that I wanted to ask you like what that means for you. Yeah, I mean, that's a phrase that I'm using about me personally. My journey over the last couple of years, particularly since I had a near-death experience last year, has been to do with getting back to a much more natural, wild state. So I've been doing a lot of time rewilding with the group on my own, traveling, being in nature, camping, foraging, and living a wilder life, trying to, as I said earlier on, trying to remove, in a fairly organized way, comfort from my life on a fairly regular basis. I think we all need to do this, if I'm honest. I'm a great believer in the power of near-death experience to remind us of what's important. And you know, there's nothing better, really, to focus the mind on how you want to spend your time. We don't have a huge amount of time on this planet. You know, 4,000 weeks. Every week we spend worrying about Netflix or whatever else is one week less of our 4,000. And we could be doing something much more interesting with that time. And there's nothing more powerful. There really is nothing more powerful than being in nature to regulate the, the nervous system. And that's what we try to do with Sensate. And a lot of people need to do that kind of work before they, can, they feel comfortable and safe enough to go and spend time in nature and to start to rewild. You know, you feel self-regulated and safe enough. I'd encourage anyone to go and rewild, to spend time in nature. Ha, that's awesome. Spend time in nature. Well yeah. said. Well said. So, Stefan, where can they find you? Where can they learn more about Sensate? And if you want to give us those details, and we'll wrap it up. Great. I know that we're going to give you some other details, and we can give you a code so that your listeners can get a discount, etc. But um, we're available to buy on www.getsensate.com. So, getsensate.com. And we're also taking investment from non-professional investors, punters at refunder.com slash sensate. So either of those vehicles. And like I said, we'll make sure that we give you a code. I'll get Michelle to generate a specific code for you guys that just works for you. Sounds perfect. Wonderful. Well, thank you for coming on. I love your passion. I love your intent. I love what you're doing. It's uh, very much needed. We need people who are looking at the bigger picture and waking up every day thinking about how to improve this world. And so I thank you for your service. It's awesome. Well, thank you. And thank you for helping me be part of spreading it. Wonderful. Well, we look forward to hearing from you in the future. Thank you for joining us. Excellent. Thanks so much.